Science Podcast, where our mission is to highlight and connect researchers in the type 1 diabetes space. I'm Monica Wesley, your host for today's podcast. And today I have the pleasure of speaking with Dr. Toby Coates. He is coming to us from Australia. Um, he is typically found in Adelaide, Australia, but today he is in, where are you? Mount Gambia. <laughs> Mount Gambia, if uh, anybody knows where that is. He's in a clinic there um, where he's doing some, seeing some patients and so forth. Um, we are very interested to talk to you about the biodegradable temporizing matrix, BTM. And we're gonna dive into that in a little bit, but first I wanna make a couple of a uh, little bit of a, an introduction here. Toby Coates is the director of kidney and eyelid transplantation. He's recently given that up, correct? Uh, recently stopped being the president of the Transplant Society of Australia and New Zealand. Okay, thank you. And he's also a professor of medicine at the University of Adelaide, and he's an associate editor of the Transplantation and Kidney International. He's also the executive counselor, Declaration of Istanbul Custodian Group, the DICG. And just a couple of words about his career in this uh, T1D uh, type 1 diabetes space. His eyelid transplant career began in 2006. The first procedure in Adelaide was in 2000, uh, 2010. The first Australian pediatric eyelid auto transplant happened in 2015. And then um, they, he started a steroid free whole pancreas program in 2018, the only steroid free program in Australia. It's pretty remarkable. And then he has multiple JDRF grants to develop this BTM for clinical use. The BTM, otherwise known as the biodegradable temporizing matrix. Uh, what is it? You know, how did you develop it and how is it going? It's, thanks very much, Monica. So the biodegradable temporizing matrix is a fully biodegradable polymer, which was developed by Professor John Greenwood, who's a burn surgeon. Now, some of you may remember uh, back in 2001 or two, uh, there was a bombing uh, in, in Bali, a terrorist uh, act, action, and there were uh, about 100 people killed, 80 of whom were Australians uh, in Bali, and a large number of them uh, who weren't killed came back to Australia very, very badly burnt. Uh, and this was John's motivation to try and develop, if you like, an, an artificial skin that, or at least a, a template that could then be used to, to bridge people until they could be skin grafted. So he spent 14 years developing this, uh, this polymer, which is, as I say, fully biodegradable. And what's interesting about it for us in the islet field uh, is that it creates a very dense vascular neodermis or new dermal space. And this is quite different to the normal skin that we have. The normal skin, of course, that we have is, is predominantly fat and, and does not have a lot of blood vessels. And of course, in the islet area, we all know you need to have uh, a space where there's lots of blood vessels to enable islet cells to sense glucose and then obviously secrete uh, insulin back into the appropriate circulation. So um, he and I work in the same place and it was one of those crazy uh, things where um, he worked on the fourth floor and I worked on the ninth floor and we never met because, you know, we're on different <laughs> floors. And then somehow we, we, we connected uh, through a, actually giving a talk in a regional centre, a bit like this, and I got to see his stuff. And when I saw the, the vascular endothelial cells uh, that he was creating, I thought this is exactly what we've been looking for, which yeah. is a polarised space outside of the liver that we could transplant in. And that's really where it all started. And, and as you mentioned kindly in the introduction, we've had now two big uh, JDRF New York grants to, to work on this. Uh, and we're now at the point, having done multiple skin studies uh, in, in large animals in, in the pig model, 
uh, that we're actually going to move into man in the next uh, in the next two to three months. This is very exciting. I mean, as the you know, as the director of kidney and eyelid transplantation at the Royal Adelaide Hospital, um, how excited are people, you know, there, surgeons, et cetera, um, people you're working with about this idea of first in man? Oh, extraordinary. In the hospital, obviously, I'm in the biomedical precinct uh, uh, with the university. Um, you know, any opportunity as, as, a, as a physician, you know, to go from bench to bedside, you just don't do that in your career. It, it doesn't happen anymore. So for me, it's, it's, it's a huge thrill as well as the other surgeons and the, uh, and the patients, the patients, of course, who are our focus. You know, when you talk about this uh, and you think about the, I think the niche that, uh, that, that's missing uh, is, is islet cells, it really is. Because if you've got kidney failure, it's, you know, we can give you a whole pancreas uh, with a kidney. Um, it's harder to give, they're not enough pancreases to go around to, to give everybody a pancreas if we wanted to. Yes. Whereas, and if you've got normal kidney function, you're taking good care of yourself, but you still got bad hypo unawareness, then you know, potentially having the ability to, 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 to put a graft in outside of uh, the liver is a good idea. So I can tell you another reason that developing extra hepatic sites is a good idea. Uh, and the reason for that moniker is if you're thinking about a stem cell derived islet or a xenogeneic islet from, a, from pigs, for example, there is of course always the potential that something could go wrong with those cells. Yes. And if you can't get them out of the liver, which you wouldn't be able to do, and you, wouldn't be, you might need a liver transplant to essentially treat that problem. So having a, a site that you can monitor outside of the, the liver is a really good idea. Yes. I, I think it is a really good idea. Let's talk about the actual matrix itself. So what is uh, it made of? What are, what's the components? Um, how did, you know, we, we talked about how it was initially, you know, used in, in burn patients, but, you know, what, how have you finessed it since then? Well, really, um, the, the finessing has been uh, to, to actually do experiments uh, in large animals and small animals. Um, with different islet cells. So we've used um, human uh, cadaveric islets. Um, we've used pig porcine, either neonatal islets or indeed um, islets that we've differentiated um, from, from neonatal cells, such as with uh, our collaborator, Greg Corbett, uh, and with Wayne Hawthorne from, um, from, from Sydney. And we've been able to show in every single model that we do that the islets survive very nicely, that they uh, are capable of sensing uh, glucose and secreting in response. The most important uh, piece of information we've got so far is, is that we, we see very good viability of these cells out, out to three months. Now, because of the pig models, which uh, anybody's worked with pigs will know, they grow very rapidly. It's actually very hard to keep that sort of model going for a long period of, of, of time. So um, we felt and our ethics uh, felt um, that the most appropriate, um, if you like, experiment to do now is to do a human experiment and actually go into humans with this. We know it's safe. We're combining a technology that was developed, uh, the, the matrix, which uh, has been made by a company called Polynovo, has global um, release. It has FDA 510K in the United States. So it's all registered. There is no, there is no issue with it. The, the novelty here is taking this and applying the ILAP technology, which is proven with the matrix, putting it together and putting it in a human. Now, clearly um, these are allogeneic cells. So we need to have immunosuppression. So we felt that the best group to, to try this in uh, was in stable um, kidney transplant patients with type one diabetes with kidney transplants, because of course they're already taking the immunosuppression. So we're not adding an extra burden to them. So the, the, what we're doing here is really a proof of concept study 
where if somebody's immunosuppressed with type one, C peptide negative, uh, we create the, the, the matrix in the skin and then we'll transplant the cells in and we'll see what happens. The readout will be C peptide and um, uh, Libre um, sensor monitored glucose control uh, and obviously HbA1c and it's a, the initial the goal of this trial which will be a registered clinical trial will be three month HbA1c and, and we'll see how things go. That sounds very interesting and I wonder um, you know so about the surgical um, you know insert where are you uh, thinking that you're going to be do this implantation um, is it going to be different for different folks or you have one site fits all what are you thinking? At the moment, we, uh, we think that it's going to be a, an elliptical uh, incision. The matrix will be implanted under local anesthetic. So the vision here is that this becomes an outpatient procedure, not an inpatient procedure. Wow. Uh, and, but of course, the first one, because we are, like everybody, very sensitive, we'll keep that patient in hospital and keep them very closely monitored for obvious reasons, just for oh, safety yeah. concerns. Of course. Um, but it will be in the upper arm, uh, probably uh, in between the... Uh, the biceps, uh, so sort of along here in that particular site there, it'll be about an eight centimeter um, uh, incision in an ellipse. Um, the matrix sits, uh, will be implanted and then we'll be waiting for cadaveric islets to see stoner islets to become available. And we've got a window there of about a month um, whilst the matrix is, is sitting there <clears throat> that, that we can implant into. And we're you know, generally pretty comfortable based on the rate of uh, deceased donor uh, islet availability that we should be able to get blood group compatible islets um, for uh, during that particular period of time. <clears throat> and then uh, what we will do is we will implant um, the, the islets under, under conventional islet immunosuppression, which is, which is uh, antithymocyte globulin in our case uh, with the tenocept. Now, because um, the people we have in mind uh, have kidney transplants, um, they're all on five milligrams of prednisone. So we're not gonna stop that. Um, normally if I do an islet transplant um, or if I do a whole pancreas, those are all steroid free, but uh, I'm not gonna jeopardize somebody's graft by taking them off. So this is, is an add-on uh, adjunct. Uh, so we're not expecting um, that, we're not expecting that we're going to, um, we hope we're going to cure, we make the diabetes go away. What we're looking for here is a response and evidence that the site is capable of supporting the islet cells um, for at least three months. That's the, the aim of the study. So this, uh, as you prepare for the implant, these people would probably be on insulin, right? Because they've already had the pancreas removed. And so then once they get on, are you going to be sort of, you know, will they be sort of titrating their insulin use? Or do you imagine they, they would be? I mean, it seems like they would be, right? If things Absolutely. go well. Yeah, so and then crucially, if you get to the yeah, oh, sorry. crucial involvement of the endocrinologists here. Uh, and this is again where I think wonderful technologies like the glucose sensors, either the Dexcom or the, the Libre, which to my mind have really completely revolutionized our ability to, to monitor. Um, we'll be able through the cloud to keep a track on exactly what's happening with the, with the sugars and we'll be back titrating the insulin depending on what happens. Uh, it's, it, and that's another reason for keeping in for the first um, couple of days because I imagine that we'll see a surge uh, in C-peptide initially that usually happens after an islet transplant because some of the cells will die. Um, the hypothesis, mm -hmm. of course, is because we're not going into the portal circulation and we've got a preformed vascular bed that will actually get a much better uh, integration of the islets early on. But of course, you know, we don't know, and that's why it's research. You know, we need an answer. We wouldn't yeah. need to do it, would we? Right. No, it's very. It will be really informative, I think. And then when. So as you um, get towards your endpoint, your three-month period, then are you kind of thinking, okay, then we remove the, um, 
you know, the, the entire, the BTM with the, uh, the eyelids that are sort of, you know, un, you know, losing their performance, whatever. And then would you reinsert a new BTM? I mean, how, what are you imagining? It's a really good question, Monica. I, I, I think if it's going well, um, I don't think ethically I would be able to remove the graft. Yeah. I think uh, if, if someone's getting a good response to this and, and the cells are continuing to function, then, which I, I sincerely believe on the basis of what we've done, that should happen, uh, then I'll be wanting to keep it in there and keep monitoring and, and just see how we go. On the other hand, if the C-peptide signal is completely negative uh, and, uh, or if there's a, any sort of other complication, uh, then clearly we'll remove it. And it's a very easy thing to remove. And I think the other thing to just point out for the benefit of the listeners, uh, um, viewers, I should say, is that these grafts are actually painless. Once you mm -hmm. put them in, um, the nerves don't regrow into the BTM. Um, so vessels come in, but no nerves. So, and we know that from the, from the Burns work that John's done. Uh, and he's had patients, uh, without exaggeration, um, who've had 95%, 95% of their total body, the skin, replaced with this stuff. Wow. Um, and, and they've survived. Uh, and we now have eight to 10 year follow-up. So we know it's perfectly safe. And as mentioned, uh, you know, it's FDA approved uh, and has global global release. So it's a, it's a material that's out there uh, and shouldn't be causing, uh, we're not expecting any long-term problems. Yeah, no, I, I mean, it really is going to be so interesting. And I think you told me that you'll have more data back at the end of June or when would you have your, your first set of release data? At the moment, assuming everything goes well, we hope to have some preliminary uh, data um, by the end of financial year. Um, so we do have a, a, a startup company called Beta Cell Technologies, uh, and that that's a company that exists basically to um, owns the patents and exists to commercialise. It's a it's a university based uh, and hospital based thing, so it's not a no, it's um, not a global pharma by any stretch of the imagination. But it's a vehicle uh, whereby you can keep the intellectual property. Um, that's contained and then you know we recognize that to, the benefit for the field really requires a sort of industry academia a partnership and and obviously very grateful to all the support we've had from JDRF absolutely fantastic uh, we wouldn't be here without them yeah the reach they do have an excellent reach down um, you know globally and to Australia and so it, it's it's fantastic that this has allowed you know this kind of partnership has allowed you to really push this forward um, I wondered if you wanted to just touch on your one of the newest papers that's come out of your lab. It's um, January 2021, Annals of Translational Medicine, a comparison of the inflammatory response following autologous compared with yeah. allogenic eyelid cell transplantation. Um, yeah, this is a nice collaboration that we've, we've had with the University of Leicester, uh, but also with Baylor uh, in Texas, uh, Bashu down there. Um, at that point in time, we were doing allogeneic eyelids uh, they were doing, um, they were, Lester were doing auto eyelets and so were Baylor. And so we basically compared uh, the inflammatory markers that were seen in the peripheral blood um, after uh, allogeneic eyelets, which is what we were doing at, at that point in time. Uh, and essentially what it showed was that you certainly had a significant release in tumor necrosis factor alpha TNF um, afterwards, as well as another, quite a variety of other um, inflammatory mediators. So what this highlighted in my mind and how we changed our practice after this study was the incorporation of a Tanacept uh, into our, our transplant protocol. So now we run with allo islets, we'll run with, um, uh, with uh, 
8 antithymocyte globulin, and then we'll add the etanercept to block the uh, inflammatory response as well. And that pretty much mirrors what other programs have been doing around the world. And it certainly uh, uh, vindicates what's been shown uh, in the collaborative islet transplant network, uh, the CITR registry. So really it's just, um, uh, if you like, it's confirmatory data that, that reinforces what what others had already worked out that, that there is a significant TNF um, release after an allogeneic islet and therefore uh, a tanacet makes a lot of sense when you when you add it in. Well, I think that, you know, more lessons from uh, bedside to coming back towards the bench are important and that um, collaboration cannot be under um, recognized that, you know, it, it's so important to get crosstalk between those two and particularly in a disease like this that you know, the bench work and the, clini the clinicians have so much to offer, I think, the bench and vice versa. So I think that's fantastic. Well, absolutely. And if you think about John, I mean, John's a burn surgeon, you know, and, and so uh, JDRF's mission has always been to try to bring, you know, um, disruptive technology in and people from outside. And I recognized that early on because I was a kidney guy and, uh, you know, they were they embraced a kidney guy uh, to come in and do this and no track record in diabetes at all and now i've become this diabetes guy and and the consequence of that is you know the pancreas program the islet program the auto islet program uh, which is quite unique for hereditary pancreatitis yeah. uh, and then john's come in now and also a whole lot of um biomaterials people so you know I, I that's i think that's great that's really you know people outside of our disciplines, not just endocrine people or surgeons, we need everyone to, to try to solve the problem of type one, I think. I totally agree, you know, and, and the lesson was learned directly from the pandemic where all these scientists uh, with different, you know, multidisciplinary focuses came together and really had a collaborative effort towards getting to a vaccine and they were able to achieve that in a short amount of time. I think that the diabetes, the type one diabetes space is poised to experience that similar thing because I do think that the collaborations are getting more interdisciplinary and, you know, the partnerships with industry are very important too. So I think as the wagons are circled around this sort of, you know, deadly disease, um, a lot of good things are coming out of it. It's a really exciting time for the for researchers, for everyone I've spoken to, really, they all feel really optimistic, even though it is a smaller disease and it's being sort of eclipsed by type two. Um, you know, people, scientists feel really optimistic. And I, I think just in talking to you, I, I'm feeling that from you too. Yeah, it's, uh, as a clinician, um, you know, I, there's something about type one diabetes, the, the awful impact of it. And, you know, people who are diagnosed at, you know, two or three years of age and, we did just recently, we transplanted with a pancreas in a guy who's 58 and had 53 years of type one diabetes. Uh, and he's still, his mother's still alive. And his mother came up to me and said, I just can't believe that my son you know, at 58 now no longer has type one diabetes. And, yeah. you know, as a doctor, that's, that's what it's all about. It's, uh, and I feel the same thing. I think that we have the potential to use these stem cell technologies, you know, Doug Melton, uh, you know, the, the big pharma companies that are working on it. They're, People with type one have been promised so much for so many years, um, and it never quite seems to arrive. And I, I really hope that in the next, you know, three to five, I know everybody hears that 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 these things really break through. So we'll see. Yeah. Well, I mean, if if a lesson is learned from what uh, scientists were able to and clinicians were able to achieve, achieve during the pandemic, I think that we can uh, take a 
you know, take a page from their book and, and really apply it. And here at the Sugar Science, that's what we're all about is just trying to connect scientists to others across the globe so that they can, you know, cross pollinate their ideas and, and just sort of initiate a collaboration or start a conversation. And I do think, um, you know, we've had some, we've had some good results with that. So we're happy. But um, is there anything else you want to, you know, share with us? I mean, how about, um, you know, the scalability of this technology? Are you looking for team members, collaborators? What are you thinking? Uh, at the moment, um, uh, we, are, we want to get the first couple of patients done um, and see what comes out of it. Because, of course, it's research and it might not work. That's, you know, and in that, I think we all need to have that uh, in mind. It might turn out that the cells um, aren't sufficient to be able to, to significantly impact upon uh, glycemic control. We don't know. Yep. Um, pleasingly, we've, we've got a nice collaboration with uh, Nova Nordisk, um, which uh, we've just announced on our LinkedIn uh, page. And Nova Nordisk, we've been working with them, uh, looking at um, uh, alternative uh, insulin secreting tissues, uh, and they're a great partner to have involved okay. because clearly the limitation for for um, for type one is the limitation of, of human cadaveric islets. So yes. if we had a perpetual source of cells, that would be a um, a fantastic a fantastic thing. Obviously, xenogeneic cells would be would be the other thing, as I mentioned before. So yeah, I think this is at the moment it's a watch this space. Um, as with all things, let's get some. Uh, you know, get let's do a small number of patients really well um, and get maximal information. And then uh, if it does translate, if it does turn out that we've got a significant effect, then I think we'd be definitely keen for a multi-center um, study. But at the moment, it'll be uh, uh, just see how we go. And certainly looking forward to uh, feeding back to, to you and the community uh, the results that we get through the sugar science. That would be great. Yeah, we're, we'll certainly have our... Uh our ear to the ground on this one for sure. And I can't wait to hear how things go. I really think it's an, a great um, endeavor and kudos to you and to your whole team for, you know, getting it to this um, point. So thank you again for talking with us. The pleasure. Can't do it without the patients. Uh, that's the motivation and uh, also the funders. So again, a big plug to JDRF uh, International for, uh, for supporting us for the last five years. Absolutely. We all we all uh, celebrate them because they've done a lot of good in the in the world um, regarding T1D. Thank you again, Toby. Thank you, Monica. See you soon.